Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for being here with us. Why do we talk about race? Why do we talk about racism? If there are two questions I get more than any others here on Detroit Today, it's, it's those two. Why do we talk about race as often as we do? Why do we talk about racism? My answer is often about history. History matters. History informs the way we do things and see things and think about things now. And the racial moment that we're experiencing, I think we're experiencing right now in America, is rooted in history. And so talking about it, talking about it with you, talking about it with each other, talking about it with the guests we have here on the show, is one way of coming to reckon with history and its influence on the present. It's not easy to do. It's not easy for me to do. It's not easy, I know, for a lot of listeners. Because people feel accused. People get uncomfortable. People aren't sure what to say or what to do. Last Friday, we were talking with author Jim Wallace about why talking about race is uncomfortable, but necessary, and specifically necessary for white people. We heard from a caller who had this to say about his experience. I graduated from Pershing High School in 1968, and we were pretty much half black and half white. And I didn't know blacks were slaves until I went to high school. We all got along. We went through the, uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King and, and, and Bobby Kennedy. We had the race rights. And we all got along together. I don't understand what the problem is. Sometimes you just got to get over it. Look at the Jews. They've been persecuted for 5,000 years, and they always raise on the top. You know, it's amazing. The Jewish people overcome all these obstacles, the genocide of, of uh, the Holocaust, the uh, Spanish Inquisition, the Egyptians. You know, sometimes you just got to pick yourself by the bootstraps and just move on. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and move on. Get over it. Stop talking about it. Caller also said he didn't know anything about slavery until he was in high school. And that's what really struck me. That's what really resonated with me in that call last week. How on earth can we deal with race and racism? How on earth can we power through the vast inequalities that still exist in America because of slavery and race and racism over 400 years if someone gets to high school and has never really understood or thought about or heard about slavery. I want to spend the hour today talking about race and racism and slavery in particular but I want to do it in a different way than we typically do. Uh, two, I have two guests here today, Ned Sublette and Constance Sublette. They are co-authors of The American Slave Coast. Subtitle of the book is The, the U.S. Slave Breeding Industry, A History of the U.S. Slave Breeding Industry. We want to talk about slavery in the context of the economy of the United States. This is a book that puts slavery in a different context 
than what we normally talk about here on the show and will help us together talk about and think about and think through why it's important to talk about race and racism today. The number to join the conversation, as always, is 313-577-1019. I want to hear from black listeners. I want to hear from white listeners. I want to hear from people who live in the city, people who live in the suburbs. Let's talk about race and racism and why it's important to talk about those things. Why is it important to think about these things? Why is it important to read and try to understand how deeply these concepts, these dynamics are woven into current American society. The American Slave Coast is about how the early economy of the United States was formed around the very concept of human chattel. Slavery wasn't just something that people in the South were doing on their farms uh, without other folks uh, participating. Uh, it infected the entire country's economy. It shaped the entire country's economy. And through meticulous documentation and wonderful narrative, Ned Sublet and Constance Sublet show us the ways that slavery formed that early economy, but also they give us a wonderful template for understanding how today our economy, wealth, in this country is still connected to the slave trade. Ned Sublet and Constance Sublet, I want to welcome you to Detroit today. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be back in Detroit. Yeah. I'm glad to be here for my first time in Detroit. Ah, wonderful. We'll have to, we'll have to show you around for sure. It's a wonderful place. Uh, I should also mention uh, that you two will be at the Source uh, Bookstore uh, in Midtown tonight at 6 p.m. to talk about, read from your book, talk about the concept here. Uh, and anybody down, who's listening, uh, if you wanna, if you wanna continue the conversation about race, about uh, the economy and race, uh, I would really encourage you to come out. And I absolutely would encourage anybody who's interested in this subject, anyone who is uncomfortable by this subject, uh, anyone who has any questions about race or racism or slavery, you really ought to buy this book. And take a look at it. It really is a phenomenal documentation of how things happened in this country, how slavery shaped uh, our economy. Uh, Ned and Constance, uh, I want to start with this concept of uh, the slave trade as distinct from from slavery itself. The cash crops, for instance, that that slaves were were made to, to, to farm. Uh, in the book, you make the case in, uncertain, in no uncertain terms that this was the power behind slavery. Uh, the power of slavery was the value of the human beings who were owned and made to work for free, and that uh, wealth in this country, so much wealth in this country, is rooted in that human channel. That's right. That's right. Uh, I just want to say, before even rolling into that in response to the caller, until I was nine, I lived in Natchitoches, Louisiana. Uh -huh. And you could not live in Natchitoches, Louisiana and not know that black people had been slaves. Uh, the, uh, the, the Confederate flag was uh, highly visible. And uh, although it was a half-black town, I'm a, I'm a pink person myself, and <laughs> I lived uh, in a complete 
bubble. You, I was never in a space with a black child. We were kept completely apart. This was the bad old days of what was politely called segregation. Uh, it was what it was was white supremacy. And uh, when we talk about race or racism, I, I, my studies have convinced me uh, of what I think should be obvious that racism isn't just blind, ignorant prejudice. Racism is a system that organizes and feeds and encourages that prejudice. Yeah. And uh, that there's infrastructure. There's there. infrastructure for that system. Yes, sir. Uh, and that infrastructure has its roots in the slave trade. I mean, this is the thesis yeah. of your book. And when we say the slave trade, a lot of people have this idea that the cotton fields were full of Africans, and that's just not the case. Um, slavery in the United States was very different from elsewhere in the hemisphere. In Cuba, which imported more Africans than the entire United States, hell, Barbados, import, which is the size of Queens, imported more Africans than the entire United States. Uh, the enslaved were mostly working in sugar, and they were worked to death in eight to ten years and replaced by fresh arrivals from Africa. Here in the United States, it was very different. In the United States, uh, especially in Virginia and Maryland, doing the milder work of tobacco, the enslaved didn't die off. Uh, they didn't live long and happy lives, but they lived long enough to reproduce, and their numbers grew. They, the slave owners found themselves with actually surplus labor, which they converted to profit by selling off into the emerging markets. Uh, this model continued as long as slavery existed in the United States. There was always a population pressure to sell into new markets which pushed American expansion, which is, of course, what the uh, annexation of Texas is about. Bottom line, slavery was itself a business. Slavery was not just a system of labor. Slavery was itself an industry. And since the importation of Africans, uh, the, the uh, bringing of captives from Africa was prohibited by federal law signed by Thomas Jefferson as of January 1st, 1808, uh, during what we call the antebellum period between 1808 and 1861, um, the trade was entirely domestic in African Americans, and people were the money. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that that idea of people as money is really prominent and strong throughout the book. And w one of the things uh, that that you guys show, Constance, is uh, that this was the early formation of the idea of money in the United States. That this was not just a Southern problem, as I think uh, we often, uh, in retrospect, now try to try to cast slavery. This was this was about the U.S. economy and how it grew up. In the United States and in the colonies before we became a nation, hard money, which everyone wanted, and in fact was what Africans in Africa wanted to trade for their own people. We didn't have gold and silver. We didn't have hard money. We had currency that we created in various ways. It was paper money. And it didn't trade very well the farther away from its point of origin. However, particularly in the South, where there 
started to be this growing population of an enslaved group of people who are already working and producing wealth, the more enslaved people a person owned, the more credit that person had, which meant this person can go to someone who has more money and ask for a loan. There is collateral then, which is the enslaved population that this loan asker already has. So thus, we have what we come to call in our book, the capitalized womb, the entire pressure of this economic system is placed upon the enslaved woman's womb to reproduce as early as possible, as fast as possible, and as long as possible, because every baby she bring forth gave the owner of this woman more credit, which meant he could get more money to buy more land and more slaves and keep it going. Yeah. This was a process of building wealth. It was a process of building wealth, and people were fundamental to the process of building wealth. Consider a single disturbing fact. Mississippi was the wealthiest state in the nation per capita because so many of its people were counted as property. After emancipation, Mississippi, well, it's number 50 today. It's been the poorest all along because slaves were the only wealth Mississippi ever really had. Yeah. The southern economy, while it's true that the slavery economy was a major national force, it's also true that in the slave states, slaves were a kind of money that couldn't really be used outside those states in a direct way. Uh, slaves in the southern states could be used very directly as money. They could be used as a means of exchange. You uh, settle a store debt with a child. Uh, they paid interest by reproducing. Slaves were, above all, a money of accumulation. Uh, you, cash came in from cotton. Cotton brought hot cash flow. But to lock those profits down... What were you going to do? Keep them in note. Keep it. Keep those profits in notes from the First National Bank of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I don't think so, because that bank could fail. You couldn't use that money very sure. far away. That pro those profits would be locked down. The value stored in the bodies of enslaved people. Yeah. People were the money for accumulating wealth. And and in the book, you guys have some really interesting figures about how much wealth had been accumulated uh, by the time uh, the South decides it will secede rather uh, than, than deal with the slavery question in, in a political manner uh, anymore. Four billion dollars uh, was the value that, that, that you attach to the, 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 the human beings who were enslaved in, uh, in, in the South. Uh, in today's money, that's... Uh, multiply by 25. It was a high number. multiple of the amount of currency in circulation. It was, there was no way to simply pay off the slave owners. Uh, when slavery ended in uh, the British Empire, it was actually possible to bail out the slave owners at taxpayer expense, which is what was done, because there were relatively few slaves. They were in Jamaica. Uh, they were not in Britain. But in the South, 
the slaveholding was there were there were four million enslaved people uh, valued at a thousand bucks each. That's four billion dollars. That was there was no way to simply pay off the slave owners. Slave owners were locked into this downward, this sort of suicidal downward spiral of being invested in slaves. And of, and of course, the grand design of the South was to expand slavery. The, what uh, we Jews usually call the War of the Rebellion, I mean, the Civil War, but which was officially by the U.S. government called the War of Rebellion, was not fought simply to protect slavery. It was fought over the expansion of slavery. And I would like to then add to this, which is really important, both in terms of our national history, politically and economically, is that this accumulation of wealth in the bodies of human beings was a very primary driver of the expansion of our territory to the Pacific. And then as we see later, uh, the greedy eyes are turned upon, particularly Cuba and Mexico and even South America at one point. But it was a great, great driver of uh, our territorial expansion, our so-called manifest destiny. Right. It was built on the foundation of human channel. Yes, and Uh, so many people were able to, uh, not just slaveholders, but other people were able to make really great fortunes out of financing that expansion in all kinds of different ways. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guests are Ned Sublette and Constance Sublette. They are the co-authors of The American Slave Coast, a book that takes a look at the slave trade in America uh, pre-Civil War, how that trade and the money associated with that trade helped form the early economy of the United States. In fact, indeed, uh, the economy of the United States uh, at that time revolved almost exclusively around the value of human chattel. Uh, We are talking about this as part of the bigger question, which is why do we talk about race and racism today? Why do we talk about it on Detroit Today? Why do we talk about it in the newspaper or on social media? Uh, One of the things that I have uh, tried to reinforce in this uh, show is that history, history is what informs that conversation. History is where it's rooted. And history is the thing that we need to come to reckon with, to come to understand in order to get past the point where we have so much inequality, where we have so much tolerated inequality, and where so many of us don't really understand where that inequality comes from. Again, to join the conversation, 313-577-1019 is the number. It's 313-577-1019. Let's go to Michaela in Howell. Michaela, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Hi. Um, Go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say I... I mean, I grew up in Howell, which, for those of you that don't know, it's a very, very highly white population there. Um, I remember growing up, and I think I think we had maybe one African-American in, like, my whole school. And, I mean, that's a big school. Um, and I think it's very important that we talk about these things because now I'm a student at Eastern Michigan, and 
now I'm exposed to all different cultures and all different races and ethnicities and nationalities. And to try to get a concept of that person at one point in time was a value of money, not of life, is crazy to me. It's so hard to wrap my head around. I mean, they taught it to us in elementary school and middle school. We learned about these things, but we didn't get to see it, if yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it makes it, it makes total sense. And Michaela, thanks very much uh, for calling and, and sharing that. I, I'm curious about how how you sort of grapple with uh, the idea of race and racism. Uh, do you find it easy to talk uh, with people about that, people of, of uh, similar background to you, people of, of different backgrounds? Uh, it depends. It so depends. Um, it's one of those things, I mean, I have, I have learned over time that I have been indoctrinated with certain beliefs just from living in small-town America like I have. Um, it's, it is a little bit difficult. It does get uncomfortable, particularly with um, some people on, you know, my dad's side of the family. They're a little bit older and a little more set in their ways, and it, it can get difficult. Um, <clears throat> but it's something that I know I have to do, and it feels right to do. And um, being on a college campus, it's definitely a prevalent topic, and I think that it's important that we do so. And even though it's difficult, it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michaela, thanks very much uh, for your call. And, and thanks for your sort of reflective uh, comments and, and, and honesty. I think that's one of the things that uh, is also really important in this conversation uh, for people to be able to indulge. Uh, let's go to Reg. Reg in Detroit. What's on your Hi, mind? How Reg? are you? Yeah. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh-huh. Uh, I just want to say that I have not yet read the book, but I do think that what I've heard in the, in the description that it's another very important and powerful um, piece of understanding what has gone before us. Uh, I think that uh, what Michaela says is really important to expand on and figure out, okay, like the caller that you mentioned earlier, Stephen, who doesn't understand why we're still talking about this or why should it even be raised, I think that's a problem that, you know, across America with a broad number of white people, okay? They've, they've been born into a situation that appears to them to be normal and okay. And for a lot of us who are minorities, it's not okay, you know, and we've been struggling for so many years to try and make it okay. But if you're born into a situation where you're relatively, you know, stable, I don't want to say advantaged, although you are, you don't perceive the advantages necessarily, but for you, life is okay, then you wonder why everybody's stirring up things. And so the question that I would have is, okay, we have great books like the one that, you know, has just been published and others, you know, that tell us how we got to where we are, but if you don't feel like anything's wrong, then why do you want to question how things are? You're born and, you know, you're living here and you go to this school and those other people are living over there and they go to that other school and, you know, maybe they go to that other school because, you know, they don't work as hard as me or their parents weren't as smart or... You know, you don't question how things got to be what they are. Yeah, right. So the thing is, then, how do we challenge people who are somewhat comfortable, who are now being made to feel somewhat uncomfortable because others of us, you know, are saying, hey, we've got to change some things. We're here, here too, but and yeah. We no need to yeah, change. Yeah. We're doing okay. Yeah, Reg. How do we get to that point, and what is his buy-in? Right, Reg, thank you very much. 
for that call and and for those comments and and those really important uh, questions about how we get to a place where uh, we're able to get more people to participate in this conversation in an honest way. Uh, we're going to have to uh, get to that after a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about why race in America, talking about race in America makes us so uncomfortable. How do we get to a place where we can talk openly and honestly about our experiences? We've got authors, Ned Sublette and Constance Sublette, uh, authors of the American Slave Coast in the studio today, talking about the slave trade and how it informs the things we see today. Stay with us on Detroit Today and stay with us on the phones, listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. My guests are Ned and Constance Sublette. They are co-authors of The American Slave Coast. Uh, they are appearing tonight at the Source Bookstore in Midtown at 6 p.m. You can go and uh, hear them read from the book and talk with them about the ideas uh, that are in that book. Uh, the book puts into context uh, the impact that the slave trade in America, the domestic slave trade, uh, which of course boomed after Congress banned the import of slaves uh, from other continents, uh, how did that impact the early U.S. economy? In fact, the book makes the case that a considerable amount of America's wealth was built on the idea of the slave trade, on the idea of human chattel. And we're talking about this today because uh, it fits in the context of our larger conversation about race and racism in America today. History, history informs that conversation. Uh, that's something I say a lot here on the program, and uh, it helps us, I think, uh, clarify the things that, that stand between us in the conversation that we need to have about race and racism and how to sort of undo these systems of inequality that date back to the slave trade. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Ned and Constance, uh, one of my favorite chapters in the book actually is about the industry that I work in, uh, the newspaper industry. Uh, and you, you, I think, do a really good job of showing how, or I should say this chapter does a great job of showing how uh, a modern a modern uh, uh, industry that we know about, that we understand, that we still have, uh, owes its existence, owes the wealth that existed uh, for a long time in that industry to the slave trade. And you use uh, as a narrative tool one of my favorite founders, uh, Benjamin Franklin, who, of course, was a newspaper publisher and really pioneered uh, the business model that we still use today, which was that uh, advertisers really pay the freight for the newspaper, the, the, the cost of producing and distributing uh, the newspaper. Talk about Ben Franklin and his role with newspapers and slavery. Constance? Or, yeah, go ahead. Classified ads from the beginning. And the earliest classified ads were for slaves for sale, or help me find my runaway 
self-emancipated slave. Ben Franklin was very good at running those ads in his papers, that, and he helped pioneer the newspaper business, modernized it from what he learned in England and brought back to Philadelphia. And the first thing that kept his paper going was not only the ads that he ran in his paper and uh, the uh, telling people where they could go for auctions or whatever. He also kept, on occasion, people who were for sale. He kept them in his offices or the basement of his house. He himself owned some slaves. He did not like having slaves because he thought they were inconvenient. You couldn't just, I guess, get rid of them the way you could uh, a spinster woman that you were employing to <laughs> scrub the floor. He found slaves just inconvenient and also not always very obedient. Mm. But among other things that he did to help spread this whole concept of keeping newspapers profitable was by spreading it throughout the South from New Jersey all the way into South Carolina. And Ned does a very good job about talking about uh, Franklin as Postmaster General. Yeah, yeah. I want to... Literally... I, I would be derelict in my duty if I did not <laughs> shout out David Waldstriker, yes. a, <laughs> a fabulous historian whose book, Runaway America, was real inspiration for our chapter called Newspapers as Money as People. First uh, American newspaper, the Boston Newsletter in 1704, uh, by the seventh issue, they had an advertisement. I'm looking at it right now. Two Negro men and one Negro woman and child to be sold. Um, newspaper advertisements, like Constance said, advertisements for both for sale of slaves and for run recovery of runaway slaves. Uh, newspapers provided a... Uh, a security system uh, for slave owners because they were a method by which runaways could be advertised, rewards offered, yeah. right? And as Constance points out, they were also, um, to some degree, the ads that ran in uh, these newspapers in the South, in, in the slavery territories especially, were um, instrumental in branding slaves. Virginia and Maryland Negroes were considered premium products, if you will, right. in the slave market. And you see this reflected in advertisements over and over. They always give the provenance. Uh, in the colonial era, you know, just arrived from the rice coast, just arrived from the Gambia. And then those, those change to just arrived from Virginia, just arrived from Maryland. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was anti-slavery by the end of his long life, sure. and who was indeed a yeah, remarkable man. I mean, let's give man. him credit. He, he, was, a, he a was a remarkable man. Um, but p part of his fortune was made, especially he was a silent partner in the South Carolina Gazette. Now, South Carolina was all slavery all the time. That mm -hmm. was its economy. It was a luxury market. So before Ben Franklin became anti-slavery, he made a fortune in, with his printing business, which printed both newspapers and money. He printed the paper money that was used in a lot of the colonies, and he was a major paper dealer. He was a big advocate of paper money as opposed to a hard money man. 
and and the the wealth that he builds uh, from this, these newspapers, from these businesses uh, that are thriving essentially off of the slave trade, uh, th- that's not wealth yeah. that disappears. It's right? not wealth it, that disappears. I mean, it, it's it's it wealth that we can find in America it, today. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the newspaper business, certainly, I don't think there's in, there was no newspaper that survived merely on income from slave sales, but they were always, slave sales and runaway advertisements were from the very first Boston, news, you know, paper. Um, they were an important under pinning of the newspaper economy. They were one dependable income stream. There would always be advertisements for slave sales. The uh, the editor of a newspaper in Virginia, Maryland, or later Mississippi or Georgia could depend that there would be, uh, that there would be everywhere. And then came those infamous cash for Negroes ads. Uh-huh. Uh, every, in the, uh, in uh, Maryland, which and Virginia, especially the eastern shore of Maryland, which is where uh, slave traders fanned out and, if you will, harvested adolescents for sale down south. Uh, Every small town had a newspaper, and every newspaper ran ads that said, cash for Negroes. And And the ads would tell tell the potential sellers where you can find this person who has money to give actual cash or at least uh, a draft on a bank that's right there so that you can get the money right away where you can find this person. Inquire at so-and-so's tavern. Yeah, I was just going to add, it also helped the tavern business as well because that was usually the place. And and what's what's sort of telling about this is it's a great example of the way uh, the slave trade's tentacles just reach into every part of this early American economy and build it uh, to to a point where uh, there is wealth and there is privilege. Uh, and it, it's sort of a parallel of the, the sort of cultural dynamic of slavery, this economic side of it. What it also is, is the inverse of what it is exploiting and extracting from the product itself. Yes. Out of this product... I hate using those terms, but that is the capitalist term. They are extracting enormous amounts of wealth that continues to expand and to grow with the population that is being extracted from. The inverse of this is deliberately to keep that population from accumulating any wealth wealth of its own. That's right. The slave breeding industry was a machine for systematically and recursively chewing up the black family generation after generation, even as the accumulated slave holdings made slave owning families wealthier and wealthier with every generation. So as these Roman numeraled, you know, Thomas Ringgold V Families, as these Roman numeral families expanded and their webs, their commercial webs, their family webs expanded, the black family was doing exactly the opposite, having the children sold away and disappeared generation after generation, marriages routinely ruptured generation after generation. Uh, one really has to admire the strength of the black family uh, and the way just it to did just yeah. to survive. But it's no surprise that uh, 
accumulated uh, the accumulated disadvantage of that. It's I mean you can't say how things would have been different uh, if anything had been different. Everything would have been different. But even without a century of Jim Crow after the end of slavery, it's hard to see how black Americans could have recouped from those generations and generations of being economically negative and being prevented from developing extended yeah. family webs. Let's go to the phones again here. we got lots of callers who want to participate in this conversation. Nancy in Sterling Heights, welcome wow, to Detroit Today. I am learning so much this morning. Oh, good. That's good. That's the, that's the whole point, Nancy. <laughs> and, and this history now ties into everything I know about capitalism and the way that the black underclass was always used after slavery was over to keep the white poor down, because you always had an underclass underneath them. You always had a labor source underneath them. Mm -hmm. And the way that capitalism has been so strong on this continent that you've never been able to organize enough to build a strong social system to, to, to combat poverty be, because you've always had a poor class underneath everything that is poorer and is worse off than you, and yeah. you could point to them and say, ah, but you're better than them. Right, right. No, uh, Nancy, that is a really great uh, insight to add to this conversation, and, and the book uh, makes it clear uh, as, as Constance Sublette was just uh, talking about how systematically uh, that was done. Uh, all right, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about race and racism, racial history here in America with Ned and Constance Sublette, authors of the American Slave Coast. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. My guests are Ned and Constance Sublette. They are co-authors of The American Slave Coast, a book that takes a look at the U.S. slave trade, the U.S. breeding industry, if you will, uh, the expansion of uh, slavery after the import of slaves was uh, outlawed uh, in the early 1800s. Uh, slave trading becomes a cornerstone of the American economy. It helps build wealth, not just in the South, uh, but throughout the United States. We are talking about this because uh, the greater context uh, here is race and racism in America today. We talk uh, many times here on Detroit Today about those subjects, and a lot of times listeners say, why are we talking about this so much? Uh, my answer uh, often is about history and the way that history informs the things that we are talking about and seeing and grappling with now. You want to join the conversation, 313-577-1019 is the number, 313-577-1019. I also want to sort of make a confession here that 
Here's a personal angle uh, to my interest in the Sublet's book. Uh, two years ago, I went to Natchez, Mississippi for the first time in 30 years uh, to see the grave where my father is buried. He was born in Natchez uh, and died in the mid-1980s and is buried in the National Cemetery in Natchez because he was a veteran of the Korean War. I went to go take a look at the grave uh, for the first time in a long time. And I noticed that next to the National Cemetery, there was a city cemetery. Uh, and I thought after I'd gone and paid my respects to my father, I might go into the city cemetery and maybe find other relatives. Well, turns out the city cemetery in Natchez is actually more of a Confederate uh, cemetery. This is where very wealthy, very powerful uh, citizens of uh, that city are, are, are buried. And so, but, but I did find something really interesting right next to the, the, the cemetery where my father was born. Uh, a man named Thomas Henderson is buried in uh, the Natchez City Cemetery. And I thought, wow, that's curious. Uh, that's my last name. Uh, and so I started to look into who Thomas Henderson was and pretty quickly discovered that uh, he and his brothers, uh, along with his father, uh, were among the largest uh, plantation owners in Natchez before the Civil War. And this has sent me on an extraordinary exploration into my own past, my own connection to Natchez uh, through my father and connected, uh, I'm pretty sure, to Thomas Henderson. I'm pretty certain that this is the person who gave my family its name. Uh, he may also end up being a blood relative. That's something that we're, we're looking into. But the book, The American Slave Coast, uses Natchez uh, or talks a lot about Natchez because Natchez, it turns out, was not just uh, a huge uh, place for plantations and slaves. It was a center of the slave trade, correct? Second only to New Orleans. Natchez was the jump-off point for the uh, plantationing of Mississippi, if you will. Natchez, of course, older than New Orleans. It was established by the French, um, and already in the 18th century, um, it had a diverse population of English, Spanish, French, and in the words of Mississippi Char historian Charles Sidnor, many Negroes. Uh, in uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, uh, Andrew Jackson, let's Everybody knows this, trader. right? Andrew yeah. Jackson was a slave trader. Yeah. We do know this. Uh, Andrew Jackson, and not the only president uh, about whom that could be said, correct? Well, he was—he is the only one who is documented as having personally driven a slave coffle. Uh, a coffle is uh, the Oxford English Dictionary term is mm. a train of men or beasts yeah. is the definition. Uh, Jackson took slaves along with all the other merchandise that he sold as a young uh, businessman down the uh, terrifically difficult wilderness road from Nashville to Natchez overland and sold them there. Uh -huh. uh, it was very important in the making of his early fortune. Um, Natchez was upriver. Natchez was a crossroads, yes. uh, both in terms of river traffic, where the river met the land. Uh, the Natchez Trace that went from Natchez up to Nashville overland, but also it's on the Mississippi River, upriver from New Orleans. Now, before steam, it took three months to get up that river from New Orleans wow. to Natchez. Uh, but nonetheless, they did it. 
with uh, boats carrying slaves because at the end of the distribution chain and with ferocious money coming in as soon as anyone got invested in cotton there, as soon as the land was taken from the Indians and redistributed, Natchez paid the highest prices. Natchez, it was the second largest slave market. They didn't do much auctioning there. Uh, Richmond, which was kind of like the the big wholesale market of the domestic slave distribution chain, Richmond was an auction market. Uh, Natchez had very few auctions. It was a retail market, fixed prices, and it sold, uh, like New Orleans did, a lot of sex slaves uh, who were typically much lighter skinned and were uh, in the trade known as fancy girls. Yeah. And and uh, again for me uh, this sort of brings this issue all the way current, right? Uh, the the connection between my family uh, and the people who owned my family and this town uh, where as you point out uh, all of these things sort of met uh, these cro- this crossroads uh, of the slave trade. I mean I think it's a good example of why we talk about race and racism. You don't have to look that far in any of our histories to come right smack up close to to the things that, that were done. The slave trade knitted together all the regions of what we collectively call the South that became the Confederate States of America, the Cotton Kingdom, Dixie, however you want to term it. These, many of the slaves were exported out of Virginia and Maryland with their culture. They met other African-derived cultures in various other places, such as Richmond and in particularly South Carolina. Another kind of culture in Louisiana, in the sugar fields and so on of that state. And together, we created this great thing that we collectively now call African-American culture. The meeting of all of these people through the slave trade, as tragic, as awful, as evil as it is and was, created something incredible, which in my personal, humble opinion, <laughs> is actually the real culture of the United of the, States. Of America. Yeah, let me, we, let's go to the, the back to the phones here. Uh, we've got lots of folks uh, wanting to participate. Uh, Teresa, welcome to Hi. Detroit Today, Teresa. Hi. Hi. The gentleman who's your guest, uh-huh. did I hear him say his, he or his father was brought up in Natchitoches, uh, that's, Louisiana? That's my, that, that's my father. Natchitoches, no, Nac- no, Natchitoches, Louisiana. Louisiana. Oh, you're Natchitoches. Oh, that's right. I, I lived in Natchitoches until <laughs> I was nine, and that then we moved to El Paso. I grew up in Natchitoches, and I thought it would be quite interesting <laughs> to juxtapose the experience of a little black girl with a white boy. So. Oh, <laughs> right. wow. Yes, so, indeed. So, uh, Teresa... Tell us, tell us a little about. Oh, it was totally separated. Like, yes. uh, I mean, total. I never had a conversation with a black child. I we were kept in completely separate social exactly spheres. Right. Wow. But what I wanted you, I wanted, I, I didn't hear you mention, and maybe you too young to know this. The the statue of of the the good darky. Yeah, right. Saw it every day. It was the only statue in town. This was a statue. Exactly. For our listeners, this was a statue that was put up in the 1920s 
of an elderly black man with his head bowed yes. and his hat in his hand. It exists today. It's at the Rural Life Museum in oh, Baton Rouge. We went to the see that. Yes, it, yeah. it, you know. They, and it was called The Good. Well, that was, yeah, it was called The, the Good, good Darkie. And we oh. were told, we white kids were told it was to honor the slaves who didn't leave their masters at the end of the war. Absolutely. Wow. And we black kids had to look at it every, every day. Every day. Yeah. Yes, wow. it, it was on a, It was high up on a pedestal in the town. On the yeah, on the little to... circle, that little traffic right. circle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Uh, Teresa, thanks very okay. much. They, for th- your this call. was. I've got to say, this statue. Constance could tell you this statue has been a traumatic memory for me as well. I went to Baton Rouge to make sure I re- to see it to make sure I really did remember. So did I, you remember? I, I wrote about this directly. in my book, The Year Before the Flood, which has uh, the first section is about growing up in wow. segregated Natchitoches. Wow. Uh, Teresa, again, thanks very much. Uh, Thank you for your call. Uh, let's go to Henning Hogue, uh, who was a guest on the show last week. Uh, Henning, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. Uh-huh. Thank go you ahead. for my call. Yeah, we've only got about two minutes, but uh, yeah. I wanted to get I'll you in I'll see if I can be yeah. fast. <clears throat> As a Dane, obviously, a living in America, I've encountered and seen racism at a level that is unimaginable for people coming from my part of the world. But on the other hand, as a middle-aged white male, the most privileged group in, in America probably, sometimes I also get a little frustrated because I think it's a little hard to participate in the discussion without having running the risk of being called a racist. Not, uh, I haven't experienced that on my, on my own body, so to say. But in the media, I mean, sometimes it's almost like you have to stick to a certain code like when Imus, I think, said something very stupid on air many years ago and, and lost his TV show, which would make him more, in my view, an idiot rather than a racist. Uh, and also, like with, uh, I think it was the BET Awards recently, there was a gentleman by the name of Jesse Williams, I think, who were talking about how the sure. uh, white people had stolen uh, uh, the black people's culture. Then, then for me, it's frustrating in the sense that if you don't listen to, let's say, music that comes from, typically come from the <clears throat> black community, you might be a racist, but then if you listen to it, <laughs> then you're a thief. Sometimes it's frustrating. It's almost like there's a certain code you have to stick to. Right. Uh, Henning, no, thanks very much uh, for that call and uh, for sharing those thoughts. Uh, Ned and Constance Sublette, uh, you guys are at uh, the Source Bookstore in Midtown Detroit tonight at 6 p.m. At 6 p.m. Come yeah. on out, yeah. Joel. Uh, very important. We'll if you're listening, uh, come out and uh, continue the conversation with them there. Uh, I'd love to have you guys back, obviously. N- next time you come to Detroit, and I'm saying not if, but when, uh, that would be wonderful. We'll be back. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, Wayne State's public radio station. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. <laughs>